Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. I asked Cindy recently if she could recall a children's book that was important to her. Immediately, no reflection required, she called off the name of Pippi Longstocking. I believe that's right. I like to think of myself as being well-read, even as a child, and I had no idea who she was talking about, but Pippi is legit. I've checked her out. Anybody know Pippi? Yeah. She's a Swedish girl with freckles, red hair. The creation of Astrid Lindgren, who originally composed Pippi's stories as bedtime tales for her children. Who knew? I, I didn't. And another book that she referred to, Corduroy, about this little bear on the department. Y'all know that one, too. Well, that was the second title that Cindy recalled immediately, and I didn't know either of those. But Cindy did grow up in the city, so maybe these books never got out up into the hills of North Georgia. They got stuck in the suburbs, I guess. In my own thinking, books about dogs made an impact on me. Clifford, the big red dog, to be exact. I saved my pennies and coupons for every book fair to, to buy the next edition of his romping adventures, and there was anything with Snoopy in it. Snoopy and the Red Baron, I loved. Snoopy and his sop with camel. Here comes Snoopy, some of Charles Schultz's earliest work. And then there was a Charlie Brown and Peanuts book converted to a movie starring that mischievous beagle, Snoopy Come Home. It was a box office dud in 1972, but it was televised November 5th, 1976, on a Friday night on CBS, 81 minutes of heart-wrenching misery that brought my six-year-old self to inconsolable tears. Snoopy made it home eventually, <clears throat> but only after I nearly died of sorrow. <laughs> and then there was another dog book, Harry the Dirty Dog. Anybody? Anybody? Nobody knows that one. Well, Harry was this fun-loving mutt who lives with a caring family, mom, dad, two kids, but he hates taking a bath. And upon hearing the bathwater running in the tub, one day he buries his scrub brush, brush in the backyard and runs away. And he has a time. He's playing in the streets. He's playing in a train yard, tumbling down a coal chute. Harry, who was once white with black spots, comes home black with white spots. And his family doesn't recognize him. He does uh, tricks and he howls and he dances, but he can't seem to break through the facade, this leave-it-to-beaver facade that they had. And not until he digs up the scrub brush and voluntarily leaps into the bathtub is he recognized as the dirt washes away and his 
true self shines bright and clean. I cried I cried when I read that book too. I cried a lot as a kid. Back before life burned blisters on my soul and calluses around my tear ducts. And invariably what always got me, what always got me was the feeling of being lost, of of being unrecognized, unknown, unwanted, to not have a place, to not be able to go home. So maybe it wasn't the suburbs and the city that made city remember a frolicking Pippi Longstocking and me a dirty, unidentifiable dog. Maybe it was just safety on her part and a lack of that feeling on mine. And it has stuck with me my entire life. Over the course of the last two decades, not only have Cindy and I raised our own boys, but more than a half dozen other boys have lived with us for, lived with us for seasons of their lives. A couple have lived with us for more than a year at a time. We have one such young man with us now. He told me the other day he wanted to join the armed forces, and I called the recruiter for him. <laughs> He's a good kid. Cindy said once, if if we had the money, we should we should just open a boy's home. And I, I said, we are running a boy's home, but we wouldn't have it any other way. Cindy, from a place I think of wholeness, and me from a sense of vacancy, we have wanted nothing more than for those who have come under our roof to be accepted, to be loved, to be helped along the way, to have a place of safety to call home, Pippi, Snoopy, Corduroy, Clifford, Harry, whoever. We've wanted them to know that we recognize them, that we love them. We, we want them to come home. And if this isn't your home, make it so until you figure out where home is. This guy in our scripture reading today, I, I doubt he would have made, I doubt that we would have made an extra bed for him. Talk about a project. Talk about being lost, about being unwanted, being homeless. This demon-possessed man that Jesus meets on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, possessed with so many demons that he calls himself Legion. And we have no one to compare him to in our society today because our society, as ruthless as it can be, won't tolerate such things. Jesus arrives in this Gentile village, <coughs> foreign village by, vo- by boat. Just imagine cruising maybe into Grayton Beach after a fishing trip. And who should meet you on the shore? A crazed, naked, sunburned man. Unruly hair falling below his shoulders. A knotted beard halfway down his chest. Now maybe this could be some of the men. Even now, on Grayton Beach this morning. But let's go further than that. He is legitimately insane. Ranting. Ranting. Ranting, raving, painfully, painfully thin and emaciated. His wrists, his ankles are bleeding from breaking free from the handcuffs and the leg irons that the sheriff is constantly putting on him. He attacks the people around him. He thrashes about in the sand, uprooting families and beach umbrellas. He curses and kicks vehicles and throws the vendor's chairs into the Gulf of Mexico. He terrorizes the lifeguards and the tourists. He's impervious to warnings or stun guns or mace or 
pepper spray. He can pull up the boardwalk with his bare hands and chews on the boards like a dog with a bone. He has great, open, bleeding wounds from all of his destruction and from the places that he cuts his own body. And the only relief the community gets is at night when he retreats to Gulf Cemetery to sleep among the graves and the wildlife. I mean, this guy is bad. And he's bad for business. But no one can do a thing with him. In his context, there are no mental health professionals, no intervention teams, no tranquilizers, no therapists, no help of any kind. (coughs) The text is quite clear that he is a demonic. He is possessed in the old school exorcist use of the term. Now, you don't have to believe this to believe in this story or to gain something from this story. You can mark it up to schizophrenia, a a, a psychic break, some post-traumatic disorder. But William Barclay is absolutely correct on this count. We will never begin to understand this story, Barclay says, unless we realize that whatever we might think about demons, they were intensely real to these people and to the man to the man whose mind was deranged. We have to enter into their understanding, if we will understand. And where today psychotherapy or medications or hospitalization or cognitive intervention of some kind might have helped diagnose and treat him, we can't hold those living in the late Iron Age of the first century to have anything even remotely close to our standard of understanding. They believed this was a demon-possessed man. And the man believed this about himself. So much so that when Jesus asked the man his name, again, how did he respond? Legion, a Roman legion, the largest unit in the Roman army of the day, of the day was equivalent to what we might call a bagre, a bagre, excuse me. It was equivalent to what we might call a brigade today in the U.S. Army. Three to 6,000 foot soldiers and their commanders. This man is tormented, afflicted, frenzied by literally thousands of voices and conflicts calling out from within him. He's not intentionally setting out to hurt anyone or himself. He simply cannot stop himself. He has no internal control over his rampaging thoughts and his external behaviors. This is a good place to speak with. This is a good place to speak about mental health, maybe. It's not my specialty, but it is within the scope of my observation and my work. And hopefully this is already known and reinforcing for those of you who might love someone with mental illness. First and foremost, what they need is exactly what Jesus gave this man, loving confrontation, intervening compassion. Did you hear the text? Jesus met this man on the beach unafraid. He wasn't put off. 
and spoke to him as the adult that he was. He wasn't pandering. He wasn't dismissive. He didn't roll his eyes and say, well, I guess O'Harry's off his meds today. No, he confronts him, to be sure. But it is with dignity and, with it, and it is with the, a view to bring him peace. Because for all the trouble he was causing everyone else, the man was hurting himself the most. I remember once the most liberating thing that a therapist ever told me. It was told to me it wasn't about me. It was about someone that I love. And I had brought my loved one to this professional because he really needed some help, and I showed up all clear-minded and pious because I could see the problems. <laughs> and I had my whole list of shoulds, needs, and ought-tos. You know what those are. He should do this. He needs to do that. He ought to do such and such. And this therapist, he listened patiently, oh so patiently, to my complaints. And he said simply about this one I love, if he could do better, he would. <laughs> That's not an excuse. That's the reality as it actually unfolds in life and practice. If he could do better, he would. If she could do better, she would. Maybe think about this in terms of addiction, for example. What alcoholic has ever been delivered from the disease by someone saying to him, Hey, have you ever, uh, you ever thought about quit drinking? <laughs> well, that's brilliant. Who knew? What addict has ever been set free to live in sobriety? By someone asking, you know, have you ever, have you tried to stop using? Well, that's a marvelous idea. Never crossed my mind. What person with mental health challenges, be they short-term or long-term, what person like that has ever found peace of mind because someone told them that they need to do better? It just doesn't work like that. Not with addiction, not with mental health, apparently not even with the demon-possessed. Jesus lovingly confronts the man and his demons. We can still use that word whether we believe in possession or not because we all have our demons, our vices, those fallen angels within us. Jesus confronts these demons, the ultimate source, the root cause, the radical origins within him, and that's what brought healing. The Apostle Paul knew something about this internal battle himself, and I sometimes wonder if he was not a recovering addict of some sort. When in Romans 7, he said, What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way and then I act another. Doing things I absolutely despise. The power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions. I can will it, 
but I cannot do it. I decide to do good, but I don't. I decide not to be bad, but then I'm bad anyway. Something has gone wrong within me, Paul says. And it gets the better of me every time. Who among us hasn't had that exact, exact experience? Be it alcoholism, addiction, codependency, religious absolutism, emotional sobriety. It all begins with that first step that we admit that we are powerless. Our lives have become unmanageable. And from there, it is a much easier move once that first step is made on to steps two and and three. We come to believe that only a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And we make that decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of the God of our understanding. If you really want a home to go home to, you have to be at home with yourself first. How can others know you, recognize you? How could they welcome you if you don't know you, recognize you, and welcome you, and yes, love you? Love yourself. Because there's no loving your neighbor as you love yourself unless you have that true, God-given, worthy view of your own soul. You know, we get to the end of this story and we find the former demoniac all but in the lotus position at the feet of Jesus. And this is that true soul. That true person that Jesus could see beneath the possession, beneath the illness, beneath all the conflicted voices. This man wasn't his behaviors. He wasn't the destruction he had wreaked upon himself and upon others. Here he is at home, finally, with himself and with Christ. And being at home is the only explanation for what Jesus did next. The villagers show up to run Jesus out of town. He may have solved one of their worst problems, but he had also ruined the local economy by letting all those pigs nosedive off a cliff into the Sea of Galilee. And I don't have time to address it all this morning, but this is a major fact about recovery and getting well. When someone gets on track toward true sobriety and wellness. All the rules in their family and with their friends change. It upsets the whole apple cart. And that's a talk for another time. But when the villagers show up with their torches and pitchforks to run Jesus out of town because Jesus has changed the rules of engagement, this former maniac wants to go with Jesus, and I would too. But Jesus says no. Verse 39 of the text, go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. So he went, and he went all through the town, proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. This is more than testimonial. It's more than being an evangelist. This is a man rescued by the power of Christ, saved, truly, by the grace of God, 
who is for the first time at peace with himself, at home with himself, and that's the only kind of person who could have returned to the people, the family, the village he had spent his entire previous life destroying. That's the hidden little Easter egg in this story, I think. You can go home again. And it won't matter if you are welcomed or rejected or judged or gossiped about or mistrusted if you know who you are and you know the grace in which you stand. You can go anywhere. I'm headed home today myself. As soon as we all finish here, Cindy and I will drive north to Georgia where she will spend the next several days with her mother. It's been a year and a half now since Cindy's father passed. I'll go an hour further up the road into the hills to be with my father for a few days and especially on this first Father's Day without my mother. The fact that we return home and parents are no longer there to greet us is sure and certain sign that home is not what it used to be. Bob James and I had breakfast together this week and had a conversation along those same lines as he has just returned from Mississippi after the passing of his own mother. And as much, maybe, as we would like to go home as children, the children we used to be, that's never going to happen. There's no returning to the carnival of Sugar Mountain, if I might invoke a Neil Young song. But to go home doesn't necessarily mean we have to go back. It doesn't mean we regress. It doesn't mean to take on the persona or place we had as children. It doesn't mean arriving anywhere. It means moving. Moving in the direction of peace. Moving toward our own healing. Finding and living in the wholeness that we have been looking for our entire lives. So it doesn't matter if your home is your castle, if the lights are on, but nobody's home. If you feel you ain't got no home in this world anymore, if you spend all your time keeping the home fires burning, or if you are the one who must bring home the bacon, if you feel like your life hasn't amounted to much to write home about, even if you know you can't go home again, then let me still drive this point home. You can make yourself at home within yourself. When you have experienced the healing, transforming love of Christ, for home is where the heart is, then no matter where you are or where you are going, that place will always be home, sweet home. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. Follow me, if you like, on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference is. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. You can always visit my website at www.ronniemcbrayer.org. Thanks to Shutterstock Incorporated for producing and licensing the theme music. Bobby Raines provides all recording and technical expertise. Tim Riles created this podcast logo. And Lynn Sunshine on my shoulder, Crow, is credited with any and all photography. This is Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for listening.